0: He looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. While some were talking about the temple that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. He said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying I am he and the time is near do not go after them when you hear of wars and disturbances do not be terrified for these things must take place first but the end does not follow immediately then he continued by saying to them nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be places plagues there will be ver- and in various places plagues and famines and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven but before all these things they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake it will lead to an opportunity for you for your testimony so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refuse. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. But your endurance By your endurance, you will gain your your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant! And to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to, the, to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, dismay among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men fainting from fear of expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great joy. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth, but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that you alone are holy. There is none like you. We thank you for the privilege that it is for us to be yours, and we ask for your wisdom this morning to, 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 to be before you with dependence upon, with your son, Jesus, to hear what you have to say, and to allow you to work in our hearts what only you can do. We thank you that you have not abandoned, you do not forsake. We thank you for your faithfulness and the confidence that is ours now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And reading through this several times in preparation, the question came to mind, where, Kelly, are you looking? What, Kelly, do you see? And so I ask you the same question, where are you looking today? What do you see or who do you see today as you deal with the things that you must deal with in life? If in the context, we find in verses 5 and 6, while some were talking about the temple that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, The days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Josephus tells us that these stones were massive. He gives us the measurements. He says that each stone that was a part of the temple was 48 feet by 18 feet by 8 feet 10 inches. These are huge stones yet When the destruction of the temple took place in A.D. 70, not one of these stones were left on top of the other. They didn't stand. But we find that they are taking the attention of those who are with Jesus. Those who were with him were taken with the beauty of the temple and not with Christ. Are we guilty of the same thing today? As we face the things that we face, as we live in the circumstances that we live in, do we find that we are taken with those things that are around us and not with Jesus? It's within this context that Jesus gives the prophecy. And so we want to do what Major Major Thomas used to call donkey work. We want to do some preliminary, necessary preliminary things and work through some stuff before we get to the application. We don't want to get so caught up with the prophecy that we miss the application, which is the reason for Jesus giving the prophecy. I know so often, I know for myself, as well as many of us, it's very easy for us to get wrapped up in the prophecy to figure out everything that's going on and to spend all our time and all our energy there, only to miss the reason for the prophecy. And so, with that in mind, for discipline's sake, I, um, in looking at the prophecy, and that's what I want us to do first, we're going to work through the chapter looking just at the prophecy, and again, for discipline's sake, I'm going to read most of my notes here uh, and hopefully not, not venture off of them too much. Uh, that's a very big deal. For those of you who have been in my classes, uh, you know that that's a really big deal for me to stay disciplined and stay with the notes. I see former students all grinning. All right, so I am going to try hard. Here we go. There, what are the events that will be seen in this prophecy? Well, there's two events. First of all, the first one involves the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which takes place in A.D. 70, so about 40 years after this time that we're reading about of the, where Jesus gives the prophecy. And the second event refers to the great tribulation, which culminates with the return of Jesus Christ. So Jesus will talk about both of these events in this prophecy, and he will intermingle, he will go back and forth in talking about them. In verse 8, Jesus wants them to know that others would claim to be Messiah, and they were not to be fooled. In verses 9 through 10, Jesus makes it known that wars are coming, but they are not to be terrified, for the end does not come immediately. In verse 11, Jesus said that there will be great earthquakes and plagues and famines, terrors and great signs in the heavens. Now, These events do not fit between the time Jesus makes the prophecy and the time that Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. So he would be referring here specifically to these events taking place during the Great Tribulation. Verses 12 to 17, Jesus wants them to know that there will be aggressive persecution of the believer. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, that the disciples did undergo persecution by the authorities, according to Acts, Acts chapters 2 and 4, because of Jesus' prediction in Luke 21, verses 9 to 11, it seems that His words in verses 12 to 17 refer not only to the situation which would confront the disciples before the fall of Jerusalem, but also to what will confront believers during the time of the Great Tribulation, according to verses 25 to 36. So the same kinds of persecution will be present at both times. And what are these things that will take place in both uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the Great Tribulation? Well, verses 12 to 15, there will be imprisonment. In verse 16, there will be betrayal. In verse 17, there will be hatred to those who belong to Christ. And both of these will be experienced. In both events, or all of this will be experienced in both events. Then there comes verses 18 and 19. Little bit of debate with these verses. Again, reading those verses, it says, Yet not a hair of your head will perish, but your endurance, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, there's been some debate and that some interpret these verses to mean that because of the Christian's belief in Jesus Christ, he has eternal life, and that certainly is true. But when compared to the same account that Matthew gives us in chapter 24, verses 9 to 22, it would appear that Jesus is actually speaking of entering into the kingdom alive. I appreciate what Wearsby says with these two verses. He says it like this, but they must not despair, for God is in control. Not a hair on their head can perish apart from his sovereign will, Matthew 10. Knowing this, they can have endurance and be able to face the challenge with faith and courage. While many Christians today enjoy freedom from official persecution, or even family opposition, there are others who suffer greatly for their faith, and what our Lord said here is an encouragement to them. A friend of mine ministered in Eastern Europe, and a believer in Poland said to him, we are praying for you Christians in the Western world because you have it too easy. The Lord must help you not to compromise. Verses 20 to 24, Jesus now goes back to the disciples' original question regarding the destruction of the temple. When will we know? What will be the sign? Well, in doing so, in answering this, He makes it known that the city along with the temple would come under the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, according to verse 24. Jerusalem will... Again, be found under the Gentiles during the Great Tribulation, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. Before Jesus returns, and this is what he addresses next. In verses 25 to 28, Jesus tells of creation falling into chaos and that men will be overwhelmed with fear by what's happening. This all will precede the return of Christ in the sky. When the believer sees these things happening, he is to, according to verse 28, straighten up and lift up his head. It's been pointed out that this would be a symbol of rejoicing. Incredible. Rejoicing in the midst of all this chaos that is going on in creation. Verses 29 to 36, we find the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree often represents Israel in scripture. We find this in Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 and then also in Luke chapter 13 verses 6 to 10. But Luke in this passage also adds the phrase in verse 29 and all the trees. So the fig tree and all the trees. So it would seem that all the nations are involved. Just like the foliage of the trees make Make us aware of the seasons changing. So will the chaotic signs in creation, verses 25 and 26, make the believer aware of the soon arrival of Christ. Then looking at verse 32, where we read, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. This has been another passage of some debate. Some think he's referring to the disciples' generation, attaching it to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But we observe from verse 31, which says, so you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. It would seem that he's referring to the generation that is living at the time of these incredible signs of creation just going into chaos. Okay, so that's the donkey work. You'll have to go back and listen to the recording if you want to think through that more. But Jesus basically is talking about two events that are to come. One being the destruction of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the temple. And the other being the Great Tribulation. Again, Warren Wiersbe says this, "...the characteristics Jesus stated can be seen in every age of the church." For from the beginning, there have been counterfeit messiahs, national and international upheavals, and religious persecution. You see, I believe that Satan has to always be ready because he does not know the times. I think he's always, I am very suspicious that he has always had his Antichrist ready for whatever time we may be going through. In other words, I believe the enemy never allows a crisis to go to waste. The one who thinks like that thinks according to Satan. Because as we look throughout time and throughout Scripture, Satan never allows a crisis to go to waste. Thomas Campbell who was a British poet and an educator, said this, coming events cast their shadow before. So we look for these coming events. Well, what do we know about them? Well, we can look at what has already taken place. As we look at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, we start to understand what to expect before the return of Christ and what our response should be. And so as we go through events in history, as we go through times, as we go through confusion and frustration, as we go through scary things, we find in this prophecy just what Jesus wants us to see as we go through these things. And so I have found a thought repeated six times, at least six times in this chapter. And so, if repetition truly does equal emphasis, then we start to get an idea of what it is that Jesus wants us to see as we listen to Him. What do I see? What are these six thoughts that are repeated? In verse 1, it says, And he looked up and saw... In verse 2, it says, And he saw a poor widow. So what's going on here? Jesus looks up and he sees. Again in verse 2, he sees. So something is going on. He's making observation there in the temple. He's looking at the people. He's people watching. He's making observation from this, from what he sees. In verse 6, he says this, As for these things which you are looking at. He, in making these observations, he's looking at those who are with him and he sees that they're quite taken, not with him, but they're quite taken with the temple. And then in verse 27, we find the phrase, then they will see the Son of Man. And in verse 31, so you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. So what's going on here? Well, the Lord is looking in verses 1 and 2. He is looking to find those who are not taken with the beauty of man's accomplishments, of man's ability, verse 6, but he's looking to find those who... See him in verses 27 and 31. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. While you're doing that, I want to read from 2 Chronicles chapter 16. So you go to Hebrews 12. I'm going to 2 Chronicles 16. In 2 Chronicles, the Lord is dealing with King Asa. King Asa was a great king until his heart became proud. He wasn't so great anymore. And this is what the Lord says to King Asa in chapter 16 of 2 Chronicles, verse 9. He says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may, catch this, strongly support. That should grab our attention. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support. Oh, wait a minute. I want to be one of those. I want to be one of those that he strongly supports. Who are those he strongly supports? they, They are those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And so that would tell us that now the Lord is looking in this room. He's going down each row. And he's looking for those whose heart not mostly his, but completely his. And when he finds that heart, he will strongly support that person. So there in Hebrews chapter 12, we find the same idea. In verse 1, after, the, after chapter 11, the great chapter of the Hall of Faith, and all of those Saints in the Old Testament who lived by faith, and as you work through Chapter Eleven, you find that it was actually by faith in Christ and what and that what the coming Messiah would accomplish. Then he turns to us in Chapter Twelve, the New Covenant believer, and he says, "Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, from verse eleven, or Chapter Eleven, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so." easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run that race? Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We run that race by seeing Jesus. To what extent? Well, the word fixing means to look away from all else too. So we look away from all else. We look away from the beauty and the accomplishment of man. We look away from our ability. We look away from our problems, from our struggle. These things are not to be what we are fixed on, but we look away from these things to Jesus. Our heart is to be completely His. Do you see Jesus? When Jesus looks at you, in the midst of whatever it is that you may be going through, does he see you seeing him? Well, who is the one who sees Jesus? The one who looks to Jesus will, according to verses 3 and 4, give up all to Jesus. In verse 4, the widow is being observed for... They, verse 4, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Literally, that phrase would be that she put in all the living that she had. There is nothing left. Remember the familiar words from Philippians 3, verse 8? where Paul says, more than that, I count how many things? All things. A heart that's completely His. I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered. Now listen, you got to understand, giving all things, giving all that we have to live on, giving all of our living, will involve suffering. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. The life of being supported by Christ is a life of sacrifice and not a life of convenience. And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. At his hill for years, going back to when I was a student, so that means years, we had a guest speaker named Dr. John Dale. We had him year after year after year. We never had him because of his oratory skills. He didn't have the most polished presentation. Wasn't the funnest person to sit in a room and listen to. So why would we have him year after year? Because what he said with his life was so loud and so clear that we knew it was a profit for our students to see this. Dr. John Dell and his wife were missionaries in Mexico. He was born there. Born, grew up, ministered in the same house for years. And then when they approached retirement age, he left the house and came to Texas. They lived in Kerrville. They lived in a very, very modest house they drove a very modest vehicle. The clothes they were were not impressive. You could tell that they were used clothes. He would show up to teach with a stack of books. Before each class, he would go through the books and give a review of each book lay them on the desk in front of us, and then say, if any of you want these, feel free to take it. It's yours. They would watch their money, make sure they didn't spend too much, and so that meant that what they ate was what Dr. Dale called mush. Unless you came to visit. The reason they would save is so that when people would come to visit, they could break out the good food. and be very hospitable to them. Everything that the Dales held, they held loosely. Because they saw Jesus, and nothing else compared. So the one who looks to Jesus will give up all to Jesus. And the one who looks to Jesus, who sees him, will not be fooled by false saviors in verse 8. See to it that you are not misled. Many will come saying, I am he. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul had the same fear. He was concerned about the same thing, that the believer would be misled. And It's a very sobering passage. In verse, 11, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians, we read this, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to a one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid. That always grabs my attention. When the Apostle Paul is afraid, you know, the one who faced the persecution that he faced and the death that he faced, when he says he's afraid, I want to know what he's afraid of. As the, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to worship. That's not what he was worried about. What was he worried about? Well, that, you, that, that, that your minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Bible study. Isn't it interesting I mean, think about it. Isn't that interesting? That's not what he was afraid of. What was he afraid of? That your minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity to Christ. Look at verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which we have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Is that not sobering? Or do we think that we've got something that they didn't have? That we're not capable of making the same mistake? That scares me to think that that could happen to me. Arlene and I were talking about a very dear friend of ours on the drive out this morning that has had this happen to him. A man who once was one of the most influential people in my life in showing me Christ, who I could ask questions to and he would just pour out the answers. I called him my walking concordance." It was unbelievable, but, but since has been deceived and believes in a different Jesus. I found um, a New Barna poll. It's from a year ago, August 2020. It came with an article. The article was entitled, The Christian Church is Seriously Messed Up. So here are the results. According to the American Worldview Inventory in 2020, syncretism, so the mixing together of things, rules the day. With the majority of Christians having fundamental, troubling, primary belief problems. And here, what, here, here's what the problems are. 56% of respondents who identify as Christian and who attend evangelical churches, 56%, are 62% of Christians who say that they attend Pentecostal churches, profess that having some type of faith, some type of religious faith, is more important than which faith a person aligns with. That's 56 and 62%. Unsurprisingly, the mainstream Protestant churches were at 67%. It's more important to have some kind of religious faith than it is to have, than the, the which the faith in person, oh, I'm sorry. It's more important to have some kind of religious faith than which faith a person has. When asked if one could qualify For heaven, by being good or doing good, compared to the belief that salvation comes only from embracing Christ as Savior, 41% of professing evangelicals said that if a person is generally good or does enough good things in their life, they will earn a place in heaven. 41%. It would appear that according to this survey that the Savior that so many are taken with is not Christ but themselves. As long as you're good enough. Guys, this this is not so far removed from us, 41%. Charlie and I both have good friends who not only believe this heresy, but teach it that while Christ alone saves, it is not necessary for you to express faith in Christ in order to be saved by Christ. What? But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you see Jesus? The one who looks to Jesus will give up all to Jesus. He will not be fooled by false saviors. And he will be one who depends solely on Jesus. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Verse 14 Don't defend yourself. There's there's two things you can depend on here. Verse 14, defending yourself, or verse 15, I will defend you. Let's look in Exodus chapter 2. We see the the same lesson that's given to Moses. In Exodus chapter 2, this is the uh, encounter that Moses has with God at the burning bush. And we know the story where Moses is you know, born into the, to, the, to the Hebrew nation. He is hidden by his mother. We know that Pharaoh's daughter finds him, adopts him, raises him in, the, as, as Pharaoh, as, as, as a, in Pharaoh's family. So he has the best education that you could have at the, at the time. He belongs to the most powerful, richest family at the time. We know from history that he was also a successful military general. So he had this incredible life, but at the same time, he knew that he was a Hebrew. He knew what that meant. So we know there was, in his earlier years, that his his own mother was being paid to be his mother, which is an interesting story all to itself. But it would appear that that was a very influential time for him, that he understood he was a Hebrew. And we know from Scripture that he thought they would understand that God was going to deliver them by using him. So what does he do with this knowledge of being a Hebrew, believing that God would have him be the one to rescue his brethren from slavery? And using his power and using his riches and using his great education... All of his abilities. He goes out one day to visit his brethren. He sees one being abused. So what, does, what happens? Well, in verse 12 there in chapter 2 in Exodus, it says, So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So what happens? Well, he sees the problem. Knowing that the Lord would use him to rescue these people, what does he do? Well, it only makes sense. Well, I'm a powerful man. I'm an educated man. I'm a wealthy man. So what does he do with all of this? Well, it says he looks this way and he looks that way. What's he doing? He's looking around to make sure that nobody sees what he's going to do. Listen, if you have to do something in secret like that right away, you should question whether or not this is out of obedience to the Lord. And so looking this way, this way, he goes this way to deal with the problem. He never looks this way. And what's the result? In verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled. So what was the result of depending upon yourself for God looking this way and this way? Well, he had to run away. Forty years later, now he's on the backside of the desert. He's no longer the prince of Egypt. He no longer has all of these advantages that he once had. His education means nothing. He's, this is what he's been able to accomplish by the time he's 80 years old. He's been able to attain the position of managing his father-in-law's property. Gentlemen, just how encouraging would that be? You get to 80 years of age, and you're working for your father-in-law. Been a big change. He sees the burning bush, he goes to it, and look at the difference. In chapter 3, now remember, chapter 2 was all about him. He looked this way, he looked that way. But Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to the cry because of the taskmaster, for I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to deliver. Verse 10, therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. Verse 12, and he said, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, go down to verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The difference between chapter 2 and chapter 3 is, Chapter 2 is all about what Moses does depending upon himself, but chapter 3 is all about what God will do if Moses will depend upon him. This same thought it carries throughout the New Testament. In very familiar passages for us, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That word believe does not mean whoever will accumulate, gather all the facts And agree with those things. But the word believe means this. Whoever will believe, whoever will entrust himself to Christ will not perish, but have eternal life. Not whoever will bring the best that he's got to go along with what Jesus has to give, but the one who will entrust himself to Christ In Galatians 2.20, another familiar verse that we like to quote, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not in me to be like Jesus, but in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The next verse that we always want to skip says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. And then Paul says from prison in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus is all that we need. Jerry Benjamin once told us this. Jesus is all that we need. The trouble is we don't know that he's all that we need until he is all that we have. Folks, we need to come to that place where we are solely dependent on Jesus. Because the one, who love, uh, the one who looks to Jesus will give up all to Jesus. He will not be fooled by false saviors. He will depend solely on Jesus and then he will obey Jesus. Look with me in verses 20 and 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. So when they see these things happening, they need to flee. They need to run, Jesus says. It's interesting, the historian Josephus tells us that the Christians actually did leave the city. And if I remember right, they actually left the night before it fell. They obeyed. You see, obeying is acting on His words. Acting on His words. Turn back to chapter 6 in Luke, in verses 46 to 49... Acts 6, verse 46, says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man who builds a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house, and there... and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Obeying is acting on what Jesus has said. Not just hearing it. Acting on it is obedience. We had a student once at his hill who, uh, and I'll just, uh, there's a lot of detail to it, but I'll just give you the the, the nutshell of it. He was stalking one of our girl students. And when the student came, when the the young lady came to me, she was just a nervous wreck. She couldn't sleep. Uh, She was very, very upset. Over just overwhelmed with all of this, and uh, and she told me that if this doesn't stop, I can't stay. I need to go. So uh, the you know, being a daddy daughter, a daughter daddy myself, uh, the, that that's that daddy heart just came to life, and I got up right away and I went out to find this fella and I had a talk with him. And it's a long story, but I you know just to cut to the quick. I told him you will not. Sit with her. Follow her. You will not look at her. You will not talk to her. And I went through a list of things that you will not do. And then I said, do you hear what I'm saying? He said, yes, I do. What did I say? And he repeated it verbatim. I said, all right. I turned around to walk back to the office, and I just stopped to look back, and I saw him walking straight to the girl's dorm. I called him, brought him back over, What are you doing? He just looked at me kind of, you know, nervously. I said, come with me. We sat down with Charlie. I let Charlie know what was going on. Charlie looked at me and says, well, Kelly, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to send him home now. And so he went home. I'm really giving you the PG version of this whole thing. Secretaries were having to close doors and rush students out of the office building because I was really upset. His parents called me uh, the next day begging to give him another chance, and I told him, no, we cannot do that. So they sent him off to Texas Tech, and he got kicked out for doing the same thing. You see, obedience is acting on what you have been told. There's another student I want to tell you about. His name is Tylen. I'll tell you about his relationship with my daughter, Madeline. Now, stalking has nothing to do with this relationship. (laughs) Well, they were students together, and on the very first day of school, there were sparks. Being the dean, the principal, being there for 20 years, I had seen a lot of sparks. And I learned to recognize them very quickly, and I knew what was going on. Within days, Tylan came to talk to me. He asked me for permission to start seeing her. And I said, no. You see, I have been associated with his hill going on 30 years now. And in that, I have seen a lot of relationships and I have conducted a lot of weddings I have seen a lot of good relationships, and I have seen a lot of bad ones. And so my encouragement to Tyler was this, spend some time getting to know her. You've only known each other for just a few days. Spend some time getting to know her in a crowd. Get to know, and what I mean by getting to know her, get to know what you don't like. See, it doesn't take long long at all for us to learn what we like. But it takes a while to learn what we don't like. They get to know each other. Tylan said he heard what I was saying, and then he proved it by acting on what I said. And he spent months just spending time with Madeline in a crowd of people getting to know her, both of them getting to know what they didn't like about each other. Then he came to me a second time, quite a while later, just before talking to me, he sat down with Madeline, he says, Madeline, what were we thinking? We didn't even know each other. When he came the second time, guys, I got to tell you, he couldn't shut up quick enough asking for permission because I just wanted to say yes because of his obedience. Are you obeying? Are you acting on what Jesus says to you? And to finish, the one who looks to Jesus will give up all to Jesus. He will not be fooled by false saviors. He will depend solely on Jesus. Therefore, the one who looks to Jesus will always be prepared for Jesus. In verse 28, we're told to straighten up and lift up our heads. When I was a young boy in junior high, I was very self-conscious of everything about myself even the way I walked. And without knowing it, I was so preoccupied, so concerned that I would walk right. What I perceived to be the right way to walk. That I spent all day, not knowing this, I spent all day walking around campus with my head down like this. I didn't realize that. But everywhere I went, I walked from class to class and from activity to activity with my head down looking like this. And then one day... uh, another boy who was a couple years older than me comes running up to me, and I realized it just before he got there because I wasn't looking around. He just showed up. He was older than me, and he says, excuse me, young man. That was an interesting way to talk. I said, yeah. He said, I've been watching you. Really? Yeah. I've been watching you walk all over the place for days. I got something to tell you. I said, what? He said, look up. I said, what? He said, there's nothing going on down there. Look up. And then he said this, hold your head up and see what's around you. Sometimes we get so caught up with everything but what's going on around us. We get so caught up with everything but who's coming our way. Will all the chaos going on today politically and socially and really, I think worst of all, because of what's going on politically and socially, all of the unrest that's going on in the church. With all of this that's going on right now in our time, don't be overcome by the trauma, but see Jesus. Verse 34 tells us to be on guard. Verse 36 says, keep on the alert. Hebrews 12.2 tells us to be fixed on Jesus. If you're truly, if you truly are ready to see Jesus someday, then you're ready to see him today. But y'all listen, if you're not ready to see him today, then are you truly ready to see him someday? The Lord is looking at us to find those who see him. Those who give up all to Jesus, who will not be fooled by false saviors, who will depend solely on him. These are the ones who truly see Jesus. Who along with that poor widow give all that they have to live on. They give the living that they have. Does Jesus see you Seeing Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your reminder today. We thank you for insight into the future by showing us the past. We thank you for the certainty that is ours today in Christ. And we ask for your wisdom today, Lord, as believers to see Jesus. If there are any here or online who are listening to this, Lord, and they don't see Jesus, they don't know Jesus, we pray, Lord, that they will see clearly their need to place faith in Christ alone. For those of us who do see Jesus, who do know him, Lord, we ask for your wisdom this day to live with the certainty of the one that we see. And we ask these things, Lord, not for our sake, but for your glory. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.